0: following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, as a little aside, this weekend is the, um, you know, the Bluffton Seafood Festival and, and all going on out there, and Lisa and I are heading out after church to go there, in part because that marks literally three years uh, to the day that we were here And determined to accept uh, the call uh, to come and to be the pastor at the church here. And it's been an amazing three years. Uh, A friend of mine laughed. He said, man, you thought you were going down to Hilton Head to hang out with a bunch of retired folks and kick back. And I was like, I didn't have that fully in mind. But God has done some incredible stuff uh, in the life of our church. And so uh, we thank you for allowing us to be your pastor and your pastor's family Uh, here, and we look forward to the years to come uh, going out. That wasn't a bad sales pitch, by the way, either. It was a day like today, and you go out there to the Bluffton Food Festival, and there's people walking around and some food and smells. It was like, this isn't a bad place to suffer for Jesus, you know. (laughs) I tell my boys regularly, you know, we live where people pay to vacation, so we can't complain a lot uh, about that. But, um, you know, we... We come and we look back on seasons of life, those three years for us. We look back over our lives in a larger context maybe and we ask the question, God, what are you doing? What are you up to? Maybe some of you have gotten to a point in your life where you're tired of seemingly not making a difference in the world. You want to be a part of something larger uh, than yourself. Say, I want to have significance In this world, I want to to leave a mark in this world. And Jesus is saying to you, by following me, by becoming a disciple of mine, by living a life that is similar to his, and doing the things that he's called us to do in his name and by his power, we are promised to have that kind of significant impact in the world. That what we do now has echoes and resounds into eternity. You realize that. I I mean, a bunch of kids just left, right? And some of you are going, yeah, they left so that they wouldn't be bothersome uh, in the service. You know, the greater picture is this. Those kids are now over, over there behind me. They're hearing about Jesus in a way that they can get their minds and hearts around. And because of that, be generations impacted because a child this morning heard about Jesus Christ and gave his life or her life to him that some of you here because God has a plan for you and that you're here and he's called you to follow him to follow his son He can say I can turn everything around in your life right now I can do immeasurably more than you ever could have dared ask or dream or imagine when I come and take up residence in your life I can revive your marriage. I can revive your family. I can give you a purpose in life when you didn't have it. I can give you strength to make it through whatever circumstance you're in if you follow me. If you follow me. And that's what we've been looking at is what does it mean to follow this servant king? What does it mean to give our lives to Christ and to follow him Well, at the very minimum, it means to do the things that he's called us to do, to do what he came to do. And our very first sermon in this series uh, said that Jesus came to serve, not to be served. Therefore, uh, the very strongest motivation for us is that we go and serve and we don't look to be served. Uh, The church should never uh, have a consumer mentality. The church should uh, never really have to post uh, things that say, here's what we need. The church should be so active, I guess, in a perfect world, so active with folks looking around that their, that their ministry radar is on, that their ministry glasses are on every time that they're looking around going, God, how do you want to use me in this particular situation? God, how do you want to use me uh, to, to affect this life or these lives? God, what do, you, what do you want me to do? What my role is, and the church's role really, is to help facilitate your ministry. You are not here to facilitate ours. You see the difference? We're here to see the uniqueness and the giftedness of each of you and to say, with that passion, how can we come alongside you and help you glorify God and follow him in that way? And those are all radically different. And so there's lots of different things we can do, and it's awesome, and it gets exciting. You know, I think there's, there's little children now at St. Jude Medical Center in uh, Memphis who have these little blankets that if you've ever been to St. Jude, it's an incredible place, but also an overwhelming place. And they have these beautiful handmade blankets that are given to all the children there because a couple of women at Hope Presbyterian Church in Cordova or uh, Tennessee decided we like to stitch and maybe we can make blankets to the glory of Christ and give them to these children and to the families who are wrestling with whether the child's going to make it to tomorrow. And so now, what started with a couple of women making a little blanket, using their passions to follow Jesus, there's hundreds of women who gather at this church and make these blankets and not only service uh, St. Jude's, but other children's research hospitals around the country. Isn't that awesome? I promise you, Craig Strickland, the senior pastor uh, at Hope Presbyterian Church, didn't sit in his office one day and go, you know, we should start a blanket ministry. I think that'd be great. He would never have thought of it. I know, Craig. But God, yes, Craig would never have thought of that. Um, but in that same church, interesting, and, I, and I'll, get, I, I'll get on task even more in a second, but in that same church, they have an incredible missions ministry. And part of the way they have an incredible, and this is a 10,000-member church out there, and they have a huge facility. You know who cleans the church? Small groups. Because about 15 years ago, a small group from the church came and said, hey, if we promise to clean the church and the bathrooms and the toilets and all of that, Uh, to your standards would you promise to take the money out of your operating budget that you normally give to cleaning services and would you give that to world missions and craig said absolutely if you do it up to standard i'll do it he said great we'll do it so these groups now have multiplied to where they have a bible study on a particular night of the week at the church and then they break up and they clean the church all for the glory of god for the cause of missions huh yeah it's a a 10000 member church there's a lot of toilets uh to clean uh in that thing But isn't that amazing? That's what ministry is all about. That's what following Jesus It says, hey, here's something we can do for the cause of Christ. And that's what we've been kind of looking at over these weeks together. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it look like to follow Christ? Uh, What are some of the attributes? What are some of the key components of that? And and we've seen that Christ doesn't do it in our time. We've seen that, uh, that we have to understand and see Christ for who he really is. That he's not a ghost walking across the water, but it's really Christ, the God of the universe, who's there inviting us in to serve. Uh, and, and talking about saying, you are the Christ. And him saying, upon that confession. Upon that confession, my church is built that I'm the Christ. And so we're coming right out of chapter 8 with that interchange between Peter uh, and Christ. When Christ then begins to explain that he's going to be persecuted and crucified. And then to be raised from the dead. And Peter couldn't get it. He couldn't wrap his head around it. And he was like, no, if that's going to happen to you in Jerusalem, then don't go to Jerusalem. And Christ looked at him and said, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. And he said, you're, you're standing in the way of God's work. And if you're standing in the way of God's work, if you're impeding the work of the gospel, then you're standing allied with Satan. He wasn't saying that you are Satan, Peter. He's saying you're allying yourself with Satan. And you need to get out of the way and let me do what I'm called to, be, to do. And so they're coming right out of that. And now in chapter 9, where we're looking at, we're looking at this idea of faith. And the title of the sermon is Help My Unbelief. But it's saying and coming right out of that time that he now takes Peter, James, and John. I'll set the context for you. He takes Peter, James, and John, the first part of chapter 9. And they are up in Caesarea Philippi, which is in the north. Uh, east section above the Sea of Galilee, if you kind of have a a picture of it. Uh, It's amazing. You you need to get a study Bible that has maps in it. Because everyone thinks that Jesus hung out around Jerusalem all the time. That was way down south. He wasn't there an awful lot. He was way up north at this time. And he was serving and caring for people up there. And it says then that he and these other three, Peter, James, and John, went up to a high mountain. Most likely that mountain is Mount Hermon, which is a little bit northeast of there. So as they ascended the mountain, you can imagine what Peter, James, and John were wondering. What's going to happen uh, on this mountain? Jesus is going away. And normally he would say, I'm going to go away alone and be alone together and pray uh, alone. But he took these three with him. And as they got up on the mountain, it says that he was transfigured. It's called the transfiguration of Christ or the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says that he was changed. uh, That bodily he was changed. It was still Christ, but his glory and the presence of Christ in that uh, his presence heavenliness, if you would, came out and shone around. And Peter, James, and John, if you can imagine, that was awesome. And then these two other figures showed up. There was Elijah, uh, and there was Moses, who showed up on the scene. And they were like, whoa. Here's my simple mind. How did they know they were Moses and Elijah? We didn't have pictures back then. They didn't do, like, Google images. And I doubt that it was, hi, my name is Elijah. Elijah. Uh, on his robe. But somehow they knew this is where my mind goes. I have to work through those simple questions first before we get to the more difficult ones. And they were there and I went, "Oh my." And Peter was like amazed by it all. And he said, "Here, Lord, here's what we should do. We should set up three tents." is what your scriptures usually are translated in the English. And people go, "Oh Peter, you're so, Peter, you don't get it. Set up three tents." What Peter was saying in the word is actually, "We're going to set up three tabernacles." We're going to set up three places to worship God and the only way that we know how to worship God because this event has so overwhelmed me. I don't know what else to do. And Jesus said, no, that's not how it's going to work. And it says that the Shekinah glory, the cloud of God, descended on the mountain. Peter, James, and John were good Jewish men. And they knew this. That's never a good thing for a mortal. To be in the very presence of God. As he descended on a mountain. Because God had said to Moses. You can't handle this. I can't walk in front of you in this way. It would destroy you. Elijah looked. Or Isaiah looked up. And he saw Christ. And his first statement was. I am unraveled at my very core. I'm undone because I've seen Christ. I've seen God. And so Peter, James, and John. Had to be there just going. Oh no. And then this voice came down from heaven. God himself speaking. And this time, it wasn't like at Jesus' baptism when he spoke only to Jesus and no one else heard it. They thought it was thunder when he said, you are my son. This time, he spoke to Peter, to James, and John. He said, this is my son. No clarification needed at that moment. They knew who he was. They were amazed by it. And the cloud lifted, and they were alive to their incredible uh, marvel. And Jesus was there. And he looked at them, he said something amazing. He said, don't tell anybody about this till after my resurrection. Still that veiled sense of his presence in the world. He goes, there's more to come, and people can't handle this, but you've seen me now. You've seen me now. Now you know me in a way that the other nine disciples don't know me. You've seen me in a way that now is forever going to change you. Because you know who I am. And they descended from the hill. And they went back and were picking up right there. They've walked down off the mountain. They've headed back to Caesarea Philippi most likely. And they've come in. And what they walk into is utter chaos. They walk into a dispute within the church. How awesome is that? A mountaintop experience. But you know it's interesting. If you go back to other mountaintop experiences. Moses was on Sinai right? He experienced such a kind of glory of God, the presence of God, and the Ten Commandments, and all of that awesomeness that was up there. He came down the mountain, and guess what he went into? Chaos. All of Israel worshiping a golden calf. And he's like, oh, Elijah in 1 Kings 18, seeing God's fire come down from heaven and consume all of the altar, and then to destroy all of the pagan uh, priests and priestesses. And he was like, this is awesome in chapter 18. And in chapter 19, he realized nothing had really changed. Jezebel and Ahaz were still on the throne. And he walked right into chaos. And Jesus comes down off the mountain and walks right into chaos. Jesus walked into this situation. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to verse 14. And we're going to look and see a few things together uh, today about what God wants to teach us about our faith. This is the word of the Lord. And when they came to the disciples, that is, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit That makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, that is Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the Father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came together, But prayer. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. So the scene is set. There's an argument now between the scribes and the Pharisees and the disciples because this man it seems has brought his son to the disciples and said, you follow Jesus. We've heard that you've done great things. My son has an evil spirit. Get rid of it for us. And it says the disciples couldn't do it. And so there became an argument that was happening. There was this tension that was happening. This chaos that was taking place. And Jesus walks right smack dab into the middle of this chaos. And he looks around and he says, what's the problem here? What are you arguing about? And before the scribes, the Pharisees, the disciples could chime in, this desperate father moves to the forefront of this story. Because this story isn't about scribes and Pharisees. The story isn't about uh, the disciples. This story isn't even about the evil spirit and the child. The story is about the faith of the Father. And what Jesus is going to teach us today through his word is that faith is paramount within the life of the Christian. And not saving faith. This isn't a salvific faith, this isn't a safe, uh, faith that brings you to Christ to say, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins uh, and that if I trust in him alone, uh, then my sins will be forgiven, that I become the righteousness of Christ. An incredible transaction takes place. I'm adopted as a son or daughter of Christ. And then I get to go to heaven one day. This is the faith, the day-by-day faith. This is the faith uh, of the disciple who's walking day-by-day through the experiences of life. And is wrestling with the reality of my desire to follow Jesus. My desire to honor Him. That's my desire. But the reality is this world and its brokenness and its damagedness. And it's all of this and the power of sin reigning still in my flesh. It's in conflict and I battle with my faith. And I don't know what to believe or how to believe. And Jesus is calling us today and he's going to ask us some incredibly important questions. He's going to challenge us on some things in the few minutes that we have together. But the first point that I want you to get is this. Faith is absolutely paramount in the life of the believer. That's what this story is all about. Coming right off of the transfiguration, coming right down into this, Mark keeps it. Peter makes sure that it's in this gospel. He says, I want you to see this event and hear what Jesus had to say about it, because faith is so important. And there's so much misguided teaching about faith and belief within the church today. And some of you are coming out or in that teaching now, and you're in bondage to it. Because you don't fully understand what it means to believe day by day. You wonder why uh, you're not experiencing the victorious Christian life in all of its fullness. uh, Why you are still experiencing difficulty and pain and you've bought into the lies because you don't believe enough. You don't have enough faith. And Jesus is coming and teaching something totally different. It's interesting that Jesus draws this father out. And he seeks him out. He asks him questions which seem odd. He could have just touched the kid, right? I mean, he was Jesus, for goodness sake. He could have just spoken and said, Get out of him. then gone. But he brings the father out into relationship. He says, tell me your story. Tell me the story of your son. How long has this been going on? And he told the story. And you saw the desperation of the father building And that this child, you don't have to be a parent to understand the agony of a father. who had this beautiful child. And for whatever reason, evil took residence in this child. So much so that it would throw him into fire and he'd try to kill himself or into water to drown him. And you can only imagine as a parent, helplessness at that moment. Utter helplessness. Of wanting to do something for your child. And you can't. And Jesus is, is bringing him out. And bringing him here. Not to look at him and go. It's because you didn't believe enough. This child is damned to hell. Because you didn't believe enough. You and your wife. You're the problem here. And if you had more faith. Then maybe your son wouldn't be experiencing. That this is all about you. He didn't do that. He brings this father out to properly correct his misunderstanding. And then to show himself to be the incredible perfect object of our incredibly imperfect faith. Jesus says, faith is essential. What you believe is absolutely essential. So that's the first point. Faith, belief is incredibly essential to you. If You need to start asking questions about your faith. What are you believing? What are you not believing? Because most of the issues that we have in our life come down to a misunderstanding. We're either believing something about God that's not true or not believing something about God that is true. That it's a matter of belief. It's a matter of understanding in the middle of this. And the first thing after that that Jesus really is highlighting is this. He's saying that faith is absolutely essential. He brings this this child out and this father out. And then he says, and he has this great interchange. And the second thing we learn is that the object of your faith is the most important part of your faith, not the strength of your faith. The object of your faith is the most important part of your faith, not the strength of your faith or its purity. Because Jesus brings the father out and he says, tell me what's going on. And the father explains to him uh, what's going on. And I love the honesty of the father. He's been cast him in verse 22, cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus loved this father so much that he was willing to correct his grammar. I grew up in a home where I didn't even enjoy talking at the dinner table because I had dangling participles and prepositional phrases that were in the wrong place. And I would say, uh, Chris and me were going to play basketball. And the response was, Who is going to play basketball? Chris and I are going to play basketball. Because Chris can play basketball, and I can play basketball. Therefore, Chris and I can play basketball. I was like, gosh, I hated English, and I hated grammar, and I didn't like it at all. And now Jesus, interestingly enough, corrects the grammar of this father who's desperate for the life of his child. The father comes out, and he says, well, if you could do this. And Jesus goes, if. You started that with a preposition. You started it with the wrong preposition. If I can do this. The man wasn't questioning the willingness of Christ to act on his behalf. He was was questioning the ability of Christ. He was basically saying, I've watched the nine guys who follow you. I've watched the guys who say uh, that they uh, are your disciples. I've watched them fail utterly to help me in this situation. So I'm wondering whether or not you have the ability to do this. And Jesus calls him out in a loving way, but calls him out. He exposes his misunderstanding, his, his misconception. He says, if. It's basically, he's saying, you don't know who you're talking to here. And Peter, James, and John are probably going over there, ooh, ooh, hey, we saw him, but then they're going, we can't say anything until after the resurrection. But we just saw him glorified. We saw Elijah and Moses. You're asking, if, if? And Jesus is going, you need to know who you're dealing with. You need to know the object of your faith so well That you'll never ask if you're able. You would ask more of a Christ-like prayer that he had to his father. Father, if you're willing. I know you're able to take this cup of wrath away from me. I, I know you can do all things. I'm not questioning your ability. I am asking if you're willing to do this, would you? Would you move in this way? But if you don't, I trust you either way. Because I know who you are. And my belief in you is not predicated on what you do or don't do for me. Too many of us have become shipwrecked in our faith because we have determined that the the truthfulness, the reality of the object of our faith is based on whether or not he does stuff for us. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to understand me. You need to know who I am. What is the object of your faith? What is it and who is it that you're coming to? And Jesus is encouraging us, imploring us to have him as the object of our faith. We have to come basically to the end of ourselves. And when we come to the end of ourselves, we find Christ. Do you think that father was at the end of himself? You think for, I don't know how old the child is, but for whatever years that child was alive, don't you think he did everything that Jewish law and that Jewish mysticism and and that the rabbis and that every fake Messiah that came along, everything, he did everything possible to save his son? And Jesus is now bringing him out, and this man is at the end of his rope. And Jesus is saying, You've come to the right place. The object of your faith is the absolute necessity for you to understand your faith. And that the disciples had to come to the end of themselves. The disciples, they couldn't do it. Why couldn't they do it? Have you ever asked that question? Why couldn't the disciples do it? In chapter six and five, they'd gone out and done incredible things. But here they weren't able to do it. Why not? Interesting. Jesus says to them at the end when they're sitting in the house alone later. This one requires prayer. Why did he say that? Could it be possibly because they didn't pray? They were so filled with their thoughts of themselves that they forgot to call on the God of the universe to come and to exercise this demon out of this child that they were in their own strength and they'd forgotten that the object of their faith cannot be themselves. It has to be something greater than themselves. You all know that, don't you? So many of you, God has taken through things in your life And you have come to the end of yourself. You cannot do it. You cannot will it into existence. You cannot plan it into existence. You cannot afford it into existence. And you're at the end of yourself. And Jesus is saying it's at that end. You find me. The object of your faith. And there's some very difficult things that happen. In that process. One of the things that. It's incredibly painful to come to the end of yourself, isn't it? Because in order to do that, sometimes God addresses the things that we've determined are most precious to us. This father and his child. What parent wouldn't do anything for their child? He had this kid and he's like, I can't do it. You have to do it. Maybe it was your wealth he had to take for a season. To bankrupt you. To let you know uh, that happiness and contentment isn't in the real estate market. It's not in the 401k. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your singleness. Maybe it's in your education. I don't know. But getting to the end of yourself is not an easy process, is it? And I am in no way belittling that. It's painful and it's hard. And sometimes it seems to get worse when you come to Christ, doesn't it? Think about what happens here. I've got to kind of speed up. We're going to be here for quite a long time. But Jesus takes the kid. He says, get out to the demon. And what happens to the kid? He's dead. Now the kid who is at least alive and convulsing is lying there. And everyone thinks He's dead. You can imagine the father going, oh, this is awesome. I come to you and you're supposed to make everything better, and it seemingly has gotten worse. Some of you know exactly what he's experienced. And some of you have been fed that lie. If you're a new Christian or you're here for the first time, investigating the church, coming to Jesus won't fix everything in your life. Your marriage still may fall apart. Your finances may tank. You may still get cancer. All these things can happen. It may seemingly get worse. But then Jesus does this amazing thing. He just grabs the kid by the hand. He says, get up. The kid gets up. Seeing the object of your faith has to first have you come to the end of yourself. Another important part of what does it mean to believe. And then we'll rapidly get through these last two points. What does this faith look like? Very simply this, it's not perfect faith. Look at what the Father said. Jesus said, do you believe this? And He said, I believe. I help my unbelief. It's not a perfect faith. Your faith doesn't have to be perfect. Your faith has to be honest. Your faith has to be genuine in simply saying... Jesus, I do believe these things, but there is a part of me that doesn't believe these things. Go and read uh, in uh, Ephesians and in Galatians, where you see the battle of the flesh and the spirit and the spiritual warfare that takes it up. No wonder. It's just like, but I believe. And Jesus was saying this. Your belief is good. It's enough. Derek Thomas, a wonderful pastor and scholar, wrote this. And what do you have to do? Believe. That's all. Just trust him. That's all. Not lay everything on the altar. Not attain spiritual perfection. Not experience some kind of holy baptism. What you have to do is simply believe in Jesus. Some of you have bought into this. You've got to be more perfect. You've got to be more moral. You've got to be this. You've got to be that. Then Jesus will act on your behalf. And Jesus is saying right here and now. No, that's not it. Does he desire you to be holy? Does he desire you to be blameless and more? All this, Yes. But, Jesus didn't save the boy based on the perfection of the faith of the Father. He based it on his own perfection. So know that. It's okay to have an imperfect faith in your life and to wrestle with those things. And then the final question is this. What's possible with faith? Jesus makes this incredible statement. Verse 23. All things are possible for one who believes this could be the one of the most abused verses in all of scripture all things are possible if you have faith all things are possible if you believe I sat in a church one time and there was a man on the front row who was blind and the pastor stood in front of hundreds of people and said that man would be healed if he and you had more faith and you know what the congregation said amen If you don't think that kind of damning teaching is going on in churches right now at this hour in our own country and around the world, you are naive and foolish. To say that you'll be healthy and you'll be prosperous and you'll be all of these things if you have better faith. So buck up with the faith. Get more faith. Do these things. And all things are possible to you. That is not what Jesus was saying. I remember as a 22-year-old kid out in a Zodiac in the water off of Diamond Head in Oahu, my friend and I were reading this, and we said, okay, all things are possible. So we prayed that Diamond Head would fall into the sea. You know what? Diamond Head's still there. And so my friend, Craig Melia, uh, said, well, Peter walked on the water, so guess what Craig did? Hopped right out of the Zodiac and sunk straight down. And we got in the boat, and we're like, we just don't have enough faith. We must be failures. Christians. Jesus said this. You can do anything if you believe. And again, to quote Derek Thomas, he said this, and it captures it so well, and we'll end here. This means that it's possible for me to care for a boy who is possessed by an evil spirit and to take the losses and the crosses that come with it To speak like Job in a time of bereavement and loss. And to say the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. To turn the other cheek and to go the second mile. It means it's possible for me to overcome evil with good. And it's possible for me to to be poor in spirit and to mourn for my sin. And to be pure in heart. That everything that God can ask of me. Whatever duty, whatever command. It is possible for me if I believe to bear any burden, to cross any river, to endure any pain, to suffer any loss, to pass through any shame. Everything is possible to him who believes. Doesn't that frame it so much better? Some of you are at your end. And what Jesus is saying, your imperfect faith, believe this, I'll get you through. I will be with you to the end. Some of you have lost a loved one. You're experiencing cancer. You're going through some difficult things. A family came up after the service this morning and shared something with me, and it was just devastating to parents. And they said, but it was good to know that I can make it through because of the one in whom I believe. That's what Jesus is saying. Faith is so much more about the object of your faith. Than it ever is about you. In the middle of it. Let's pray. God this is. A difficult. Thing to understand. It's not easy. For us to grapple with. But I pray. There are some here today. Who are really wrestling. They are at the end of their rope. And they're crying out. Jesus I believe. Help my unbelief. Would you touch them? Would you minister to them? Would you show them yourself today? And would their belief be strengthened? And would they be able to make it through to the end? Because you're with them. Father, thank you for your infinite mercy and grace to us. Give us a deep faith. Give us a faith that has rested on you. To Christ be the glory. Amen.